0: hey guys welcome to this edition of let's be blunt with montel and i am so excited about today's show i can't even tell you and you know part of the reason why i'm excited is because i literally have a hero that i'm gonna get a chance to talk to A hero that that just by thought when i think of think of his name and think of the duo that he was part of It takes me back to my youth. You know, I was born, I'm going to say I'm a child of the 60s. Well, I was born in 1956. So, you know, yes, in fact, I turned 65 this year. And, you know, as I was growing up, back then in the latter part of the 60s, early part of the 70s, and I tell the truth, you know, um, I probably consumed my first bit of of cannabis back at about 1968, 69. Um, I just happened to fortunately grow up at a time when, you know, at um, age 14, I was a musician. I started playing in the band and all of my bandmates were way older than me. And one of them turned me on to, you know, a little ganja uh, during one of the gigs. And I remember I never looked back from that second that he turned me on. I was like, oh, this is over the top. It's great. Works so well with my performances and I was playing in the band singing. And then I remember, you know, before gigs, we would sit around and listen to this <laughs> album. And listening to this album of these two guys, and these two guys were Cheech and Chong. And I'll never forget, I mean, one of my favorite uh, favorite uh, uh, hits off of one of their, their albums was Dave, you know, uh, the guy that walks up, knocks on the door. Hey, man, let me in, is Dave, no, Dave's not here, man. No, no, I'm Dave. No, Dave's not here, man. I mean, that was literally the, the mantra of the day for our band. Not here, man. And so, you know, I mean, I, I, I remember uh, there were times like just sitting in the van waiting to go on as a performer. And back then, being 15 and 16 years old, playing in a band that was playing in nightclubs, I wasn't allowed to go in the nightclub until we actually performed. I had to sit outside in a truck. And so, of course, I was sitting outside catching a little buzz, you know, while I was waiting to go on. And uh, Chi Jin Chong would be on my radio. So it's like it's just such a trip to have a chance to now actually sit down and have a conversation with the legendary Mr. Tommy Chung, who's an actor, best-selling author, Grammy award-winning co- comedian. He's really literally America's sweetheart when it comes to cannabis with over 40 years of activism. You know, it's amazing that when you look back and think about Tommy's best known, like I said, as being one half a legendary. You know, cannabis-fuel comedy duo, Cheech and Chong, which minted over six gold records, released eight films during their reign, which, of course, Tommy was one of the writers and director for. And Cheech and Chong defined an era, pioneering a unique brand of stoner comedy, that's what it was called back then, which has remained at the forefront for decades since their hilarious, irreverent, irrever- I'm sorry, irrelevant <laughs> I got tongue tied irreverent and satirical, no holes barred comedy routines. Their stunning success in a comedy straight transition to the film Up in Smoke, which was the highest-grossing comedy of the time, whopping over a hundred million dollars in the box office. And Chong has been recognized also for his role as an aging hippie in Leo on Fox's that '70s show. I am so happy to have him here as part of Let's Be Blunt, Mr. Chong. Thank you so much for being here today, sir. Well, thank
1: you for having me. Appreciate
0: it. Absolutely, man. Let's go back in time. I mean, you know. Uh, you, you've trans, you know, uh, gone uh, across generation after generation after generation that doesn't even recognize that, you know, uh, people like me, you know, I think that, you know, I've been one of these guys that's been out here trying to lead a good fight since 2000. You've been doing this since 1970s, man. This has really been absolutely incredible. Um, let's talk a little bit about where this all started for you. You're Canadian American. When did you move to America? Uh, I moved, to,
1: we, we used to sneak down to America from uh, Vancouver. Uh, I had a, I had a band like you and, uh, and, you know, we we're for the most part Canadian, but we had a couple of Americans in the band, but we, at, no, at the time we were sneaking down, we we're all Canadian. And so we had to sneak down we'd work a little bit and then we'd go home. And, uh, that was in the fifties. we started i i started, my first time in America was in nineteen uh fifty eight Wow uh, we was, went went to Seattle yeah, and uh, we you know we played we had an r and b band the only r the first and only r and b band in Canada for years. you know it's all mixed you know we had in fact, we called ourselves the Shades because we had a full-blood native American Indian. Uh, a black uh, uh, singer from uh, you know a Canadian de- descendants from Texas from the slaves and then uh, and and yeah that was tommy and uh, yeah our whole band was mixed and so we call ourselves the shades
0: <laughs> so great man now of course were you smoking back then coming from Vancouver you know Vancouver, well right
1: no i i yeah i smoked yeah that's when i learned i, I first started smoking in 1957 but in calgary the, the weed was very scarce so the guy that gave me the joint i just put the joint in my pocket and we smoked his and that was my first uh, first trip but yeah i've been smoking since 1957 but I, I used it more uh you know because i was into bodybuilding almost at the same time and so i i uh, I didn't drink, you know, excessively, and I, I smoked cigarettes. And so I got off cigarettes by uh, using uh, marijuana as a substitute.
0: That's right. and a lot of people don't know, you know, you were way ahead of your time, way back yeah. then. You know, yeah. the fact that you were using cannabis or marijuana while being a bodybuilder, you didn't yeah. probably know you were using it kind of semi-medicinally to help with some yes. muscle pain and joint pain and those kinds of things, right?
1: Yeah, I didn't know it at the time, but I just wanted to quit smoking. So every time I felt like a cigarette, I'd light up a joint. And, you know, you know, I, and I'm a one-toker anyway from way back. Nice. Yeah, I'd take my, my one-toke, put it out, and uh, – and that's the way I am today. Still, I, you know, I, I sometimes those one tokes you know, are side by side.
0: You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's getting a little stronger. So these days, you do have a higher THC count, and so this is making it a little bit easier for that one toke thing. I'm, I'm pretty yeah. much almost the same thing. I'm a one toke one of these days. You know, there was a while there where I was a, you know, probably a, mm, easily a ten toker every hour. I mean, you know, I was, I was yeah, like, hitting it every five or six minutes. But then. Um, you know in the last two years, I've kind of slowed down a little bit and I've enjoyed now i I've, I've always enjoyed cannabis and I started getting back into cannabis because of uh, my medical reasons. I literally you know like I said when I opened, you know I started smoking a little bit when I was in high school and then right after high school, I joined the military and because back then the military started testing for smoking marijuana in about nineteen eighty I literally stopped completely, shut down, didn't touch my joint again for almost, you know, 20 years. And then when I got diagnosed with MS, and then right before I got diagnosed with MS, I think because unbeknownst to me, I had some of my symptoms of MS that were bothering me so much that I literally started transitioning away from alcohol and started transitioning back towards uh, marijuana because it literally was making me feel better dealing with, at that time, unbeknownst symptoms of MS. All right. when I was finally diagnosed with MS. It was really crazy. I had my doctors literally prescribe for me almost every opioid under the sun. I mean, anything that ended with set, they gave me, you know, from Percocet, mm-hmm. to, Percocet to this, that, and the other. And, you know, it almost shut my kidneys down, it almost shut my liver down. I had a doctor look at me and say, I'm done with you. I'm not writing you any more prescriptions for opioids. And if I were you, I'd start looking into this whole marijuana thing. Because I know some other patients who have MS who've said that they've gotten really good relief from a particular type of marijuana. and I don't know what it, what it is. It's like one of these weird things of cannabinoids or cannabis, something. I don't know, you do the research. I'm never going to tell anybody I, I recommended this to you. This is a really, this is, I won't give the name of the doctor, but this is a, one of the major university doctors in this country who said to me, that's where I think you'll find your relief. And what he was trying to say to me was, there's this type of cannabis out there. It's called, you know, it's got the cannabinoids that's strong in CBD. Tommy, this was back in 2000. Yeah. Back before anybody was even talking about CBD. So I went west and started looking around. I was in Northern California and looking around and saying, look, I heard about something called, I think it's CBD, or or CB, something. And it got something on CBD. Nobody wants that. I mean, I got a whole bag of, of Keith back here with C- that's high in CBD. If you want it, I'll give it to you. And back in 2000, I literally scored myself about you know, five ounces of CBD-laden Keef and started using that back then and recognized immediately that it took care of you know, things like my neuropathic pain. Didn't make it go away, but it lessened it, made it more dealable. And it knocked out something I would call my, my spasmatic legs, man. I had, like, night tremors gone. First night I smoked it, I slept for the night through. Didn't kick one time. And from that point forth, I have never experienced night tremors by using cannabis. So whoa. go
1: ahead. No, no, I'm just going, whoa, that's really nice to hear.
0: Man. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, and I think, though, what was really interesting about it, when I very first started using it medicinally, Again, great memories of you came back, and you know, I was going, you know, who, who would have thunk that what I was running around playing with, unbeknownst to me, I was really literally looking at medicinally to begin with, and that's been a journey too, right? I mean, when you think back on it, you think back, that's probably, you know, how you started. When you started using it while you were bodybuilding, and you know, there's a lot of joint pain and a lot of muscle pain that people don't know about, it goes along with that sport, Cannabis relieved a lot of. That, did it not?
1: Well, not only relieved uh, the 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 aches and pains. You know, helped me on the you know on the road. Like we're playing all these uh, sets and and uh, in between sets. You know, every once in a while we would all share a little a marijuana dust joint because we had a dealer. He would sell this, uh, these pinners, and it really was marijuana dust. But they're little skinny little things. And in between sets, you know intermission time, we'd all share a, a little pinner, and that would be enough to make the set enjoyable because the marijuana affects the the, the creative brain you know and it goes right there and puts you in the moment that i mean that's my my uh, observation and and because it made you play better uh that that that's that was why it would it would became it really became my my favorite uh, way of uh, of doing it. But it also helped the fingers, you know, because I'm not the best, you know, I'm not the strongest, but after five sets of playing Chuck Berry music, you know, <laughs> that Absolutely. wears and tears.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, and you're right. I mean, it, it, we know through history. You know, all of some of our greatest minds actually consume cannabis, and there's some. lies, well, there's some. There's some rumors out there that you know Albert Einstein smoked a little bit, but we know for a fact that Benjamin Franklin did because you know when they finally checked his pipe that was sitting on the desk at the Smithsonian Institute, they dug around and scraped it up. They realized that, Dang God, this is this is marijuana that my boy was smoking. So our <laughs> forefathers, <laughs> who all grew it all knew its viability and its, uh, you know, its ability to help them be more creative. That's how we came up with things like the Constitution of the United States, which has lasted now for 250-plus years, so clearly it must have been pretty good. Let's go back to your early days and your career as you started become moving up. When did you meet you know, Chief Baron?
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back. the red life i know this is going to become your new favorite podcast and i'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step by step every single week uh was uh, getting out of the draft he was he had a deferment uh college deferment during the vietnam war and then they eliminated the deferment and they went after every mexican they could find and And he was on top of the list because he was an anti-war protester at the same time. And so he had escaped. He escaped up to to Canada, went to Calgary first, right next to where I grew up. And and he knew a lot of people that I knew. Uh, He met a lot of people that I knew when I was growing up. But then he moved to Vancouver. And before he went to Vancouver, he broke his leg in BAMP skiing. Ah. The California boy wasn't supposed to, you know, Start at the top of the Black Diamond Hills, and so, <laughs> and so he he broke his leg, and then he came to Vancouver Then he was came to Vancouver after after he recovered, and he was working as a writer in a in a hippie magazine, and delivering uh, carpets on the side, uh, and then uh, I, I started an improvisational nightclub. We, we I had a couple of nightclubs up there you know, that were given to me. Because I had a hot band and they had an empty building, so I ended up with an after-hours club and a and a strip club. What was originally a what do you call it a, a dinner club, and then I I started the Vancouver's first strip strip club, wow. and and then I changed the strip club into an improvisational nightclub, and where I had the girls act you know as actresses instead of uh, dancers, and which they danced to at the same time, and we had sort of this X-rated uh, uh, improvisational nightclub going and then the straight man his wife found out we, we we were using real actors and his wife found out that he was working with strippers so he she pulled him out of there and so then a mutual friend suggested Cheech and so then I hired Cheech as a uh, <clears throat> as a straight man and uh, the, the 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 show went on for about eight months and then we got fired because we, we weren't making any money for the club. You know, we <laughs> we, we changed it over from, a, uh, you know, a bunch of drunk uh, bikers into a, a theater group that counted their change. And so we weren't making any money. And so my brother fired us. And so then Cheech and I just stayed together because it, neither one of us had any more anything else to do other than uh, the show. And so we stayed together and then we came down to L.A. and got discovered and uh, the rest is history.
0: It was were some of those those original sketches on your albums? They, were they born there at that Vancouver club? Oh yeah, a couple,
1: a couple. Most of them were were or a lot of them were inspired by the committee. Uh, you know, the committee, uh, San Francisco committee. Uh, uh, it's a group of improvisational actors in Second City. Uh, you know, but. but we got dis- the band I was in got discovered by Barry Gordy and uh, Diana Ross and so we were we got a Motown contract we went to Motown in 1967 and uh, I did a we recorded a song that I wrote called Does Your Mama know about me and then so we were in in the Chidlin circuit. And, and so we, we toured with Stevie Wonder and Smokey and Diana Ross, and, and we went all through the, the children's circuit. So I, I got a, I picked up a lot of uh, bits from these different clubs and that. You know, and a lot of black clubs that I worked in, too. I, I, I would watch all the black comedians do all their bits, you know, because they had comedy in all the black clubs, you know, way before comedy stores or anything. In fact, the first comedy store would be a black uh, nightclub, you know, where like a Red Fox would come out first and do his bit, and then the band would play. And, in fact, Cheech and I played uh, in front at a place, a club in uh, L.A. called PJ's, and it was where Carmen McRae played and Cannonball Adderley and all these jazz greats would play, and we would open for them. And then we got discovered uh, by, then we went to uh, start doing open mic night at the Troubadour. Uh, because it was a folk club and it was perfect for comedy especially our kind comedy because they're sitting there you know they're not drinking and dancing they're sitting there watching and so we uh started playing at the troubadour and that's where we got discovered and that's where l.a was see before we came to l.a when we were in canada no one knew that Cheech was mexican <laughs> we didn't know what he was and so he uh but when when we got to L.A., in order to get a you know to excite this crowd, uh, he had to come up with a, his Chicano character. And as and soon as he did that, then uh, you know everybody knew then that we were destined to be stars. Because once you do Chicano humor in L.A., lowrider humor, man, it, we became we became well. In fact, in Dave's not here. was was a rehear, was our first rehearsal and our only rehearsal. It was a rehearsal. I, he went outside of uh, of the mixed-down room where, where we were rehearsing, and it was really hot, right in the sun. It was a, old Charlie Chaplin Studios. And it was right this one little area where Charlie shot a lot of his movies uh, there. And it was just this one area the sun was just beating down, and he couldn't get away from it. And I was inside a nice air-conditioned studio. And so every time Cheech would knock, at first, I didn't mean to. He'd knock, and and I'd look up at the door instead of looking at the recorder, and and I didn't know if I recorded it. So that's why I paused, and so, and and so I said, "Who is it?" Then he, and and then I'd look to see if it was recording, and then because neither one of us were talking, the needle wasn't moving, so I just waited, and then the wait, the pause. Te- made Cheech te- te- a little anxious, and so he knocked again, you know, and then I could hear in his voice that, you know, he was, what's going on there, you know, I was supposed to open up the door, right. and so, so he knocked again, and so I I wanted to see how long I could keep him outside, so that's <laughs> when I went, and that's when I went, who is it, it's Dave, and then I said, Dave, yeah, <laughs> Dave's not here, <laughs> that was like the kind of, when we were rehearsing it, Then he blew up. He got mad. Come on, man. Open the door. It's hot out here, man. I'm dying. The great thing about Teach is that when we get in bits like that, he never breaks character. And so he stayed in character the whole bit. And we recorded it on this little tape recorder and then we w- went around and we we showed it to everybody at the studio and that and then Lou Adler our producer he said well let's record it at night and so we went into the big studio and we recorded the record that uh, that w- became a big hit
0: wow damn time you again big huge hit <laughs> yeah. you. i don't know yeah. anybody who didn't play that, that you know a, a- try to repeat that or or mimic that. You know, you, you go to school and somebody would say, hey, man, you know where Dave is? This <laughs> is the funniest thing. <laughs> Loved it. I love it. So now you guys, uh, you, you did eight films total, right?
1: Eight or nine. Uh, yeah, it depends on how you want to count them. But yeah,
0: yeah, we did. And I, that must have been, I, I just just take me back for a second and tell me, you know, you're making humor about something that, and let's Talk about it. It was illegal yet people couldn't get enough of it, but people weren't supporting trying to make it legal. And really, (laughs) you know, was your whole motivation really inspired by trying to, to, you know, get people to say, come on, man, stop the stupidity. This is something that everybody's doing. So we may as well put it out in the open. Well, more than that,
1: you know, the, 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 the Chicano, the reason Cheech didn't let anybody know he was Mexican or Chicano was that the racist attitude in, you know, in the country with everybody in Canada included, you know, and so he, he was no one knew what he really was. And then when we got to L.A., same thing. We had a little. Almost argument about it, you know, because when he'd show me the character, I said, "Well, let's do it." And he's he was a hesitant because he, he didn't want to, you know, uh, degrade anybody, you know, racially, you know, because that's really what what that character was a caricature of, of of a character, and and so then when we we the up and smoke was supposed to be a. a uh, Cheech and Chong's greatest hits. At least that was the suggestion that our, the director Lou Adler and our, our, our record guy wanted. But when Cheech and I got together to write the movie, we, we both looked at each other and Cheech says, uh, so, so what do we do the movie about, you know, what characters, because we had a ton of characters. And I said, well, the Chicano, you know, uh, Pedro, Pedro and man, my, you know, the hippie. And so, um, so when we are shooting the movie, I, I started realizing, uh, you know, the the, the 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 American public and everybody had were viewing Mexicans much like Donald Trump does, you know, rapists, thugs, and and gang members, you know, that whole thing. And so I wanted to change that dynamic, but have the guy look like he did, you know, the low rider with the lowrider car, but instead of being a gang member, he's a musician, you know, and, and he's a broke ass musician. And, and we're trying, I was trying to get a band together and I was, you know, and then I want to portray uh, the white rich kid or the Jewish kid actually had turned out to be stoner uh, living in a nice mansion, but he's a musician too. So he's down in the ghetto too. And so I wanted to, to, to show that. You know the the meeting of the cultures and and how the cultures could meet together make music and be have fun where one culture really adopts the other culture you know and and that's what we did in the movie and then i also wanted to show how uh, marijuana w- w- would help you It'd give you an appetite for sure yes. and and then I, then I wanted to show how pills, because I had that experience where we, one time we had a, a drummer, he was a heroin addict, and every time he'd get stoned on on whatever, because, you know, he when we're on tour in Canada, he would do everything he could find, you know, he had a good rap down, he'd go in the drugstore and, and talk them out of any kind of opioids that, that they had, especially in Canada. And so being a drummer, that's the worst thing a drummer can do <laughs> you to do any kind of doubters. And so I wanted to show that part in the movie, too, because we weren't going to play the whole song. I just wanted to, to make statements. I kept wanting to make statements with it. And so showing a drummer on opioids well, to me, it was a, a stroke of genius because that's the last guy you want on opioids. You keep right. keep that, you got to keep that rhythm, and then, and then I fall over and everything else. And, and then, also wanted to show that how much time we spent looking for, for to get high with marijuana. You know, I wanted to show it, and yet we're driving around in a in a van made out of marijuana. You know right. there was all there was all these innocent but everyday things that people do, you know, and and so so the movie one of the reasons it was such a big hit, you know, it almost didn't make it, you know, the movie because what, Lou Adler, was the director, you know, and but I was writing and and you uh, know really when I write I just find Teach tells me stories and then I just work them into into a, a scene. And 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 then Cheech always did his own dialogue, and in fact, all the the, the actors in up and smoke. They literally, it was an improvisational movie where, like Struthers Martin, he did every line he wrote himself, and it was, wow. it's one of the most iconic speeches. You know, you get a job by sundown, or I'm shipping you up to military school with that finkelstein. Everybody's got that memorized, and they always credit you know Cheech and Chong for writing it, but we never wrote one line. Struthers improv that whole thing. And when you get with actors like Stacy Keach, Struther Martin, you know, these are pros. They've been, they can ad lib for four hours if you, if you let them. And so we put that element into the movie, but at the end of the movie, Lou Adler thought, Oh, okay. I I, I see where we're going with this. And so he wanted to write the ending, but he, but being, being a, you know, like a businessman, record man, uh, he wanted to end with Stacy Keach because he was a you know marquee kind of star yeah. and and not Struthers, but Stacy for sure. And so, the end of the movie that Lou came up with it was it was all a dream, you know, and nothing worse, nothing worse, and you know, showing people a, a whole thing and then telling them it wasn't real. And so, I That's, that's when I stepped in and and took over as director. And so I wrote uh, the, uh, the the ending where it was very simple. Because all all we did was uh, just drive off into the sunset and talk about the next gig, you know, but I wanted to give everybody I didn't want him to, you know, it didn't, it wasn't something that was going to end. Right. It's something, and, you know, and it was, and, and symbolically too, it was like the, these guys, you know, the Chicano, you know, that has changed everybody's attitude toward the, the Mexican race, and the rich kid that discovered the, you know, the the joys of, of music in the ghetto and having nothing but music and pot. You know, I wanted to show that that and and uh, that it's been around for now almost fifty years.
0: I, know, it's incredible. I mean, That must have blown your mind when you the, uh, you started you know, ching-chinging at the box office and you guys hit almost $100 million in sales. That blew you out the door, didn't I? Well,
1: it would have been nice if we got any of it. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> again, again, you know the story. You know the story. It was our first movie, but we left out because I wouldn't sign the contract that Lou sent over. You know, it didn't feel right, you know, and, uh, and so we had no contract. Wow. And so then, and then, and then uh, things got a little iffy, you know, success will do that to anybody, you know, success, all of a sudden, everybody's the, the father of success, you know, and then everybody wants more than what they agreed on. Well, we never really agreed on anything, we just assumed. A- anyway, long story short, we uh, ended up in court, I, they, they actually sued me. The Lou Adler, uh people sued me for outstanding debt. I don't know what they were thinking. I think, no, in fact, I do know what happened. The karma karma of, you know, if you do good, don't worry about it. Things will work out. That's what that's what protected us. You know, that kept me from signing the contract. That would have, we would have been not screwed out of everything. But instead, I, I didn't sign it. And then when we went to court, we brought we we did discovery, and we found out that uh, that Lou and the and the and his company had used Cheech and Chong's money to to do the ending of the movie, and so we we ended up with a big settlement. We could have ended up with the whole movie, but I I, I didn't want to do that, you know, because Lou did contribute so much to that movie. You know, the, you know, he, he, he was responsible for the, all the cops, you know, the, uh, Stacy Keach, you know, that whole straight line, his, his people. And we used, uh, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Lou Lombardo was, uh, the producer that had done a lot of uh, movies with, uh, what's a movie actor or oh, the director. Anyway, it, it all worked out good. It all worked out fine. And, and, uh, and we're all, you know, we, Cheech and I got a night, we got paid, in other words, we yeah. got paid. And, and, but what it did more than anything, it, it, it for me, for sure, and Cheech too, it allowed us, you know, to do all the, the, the eight movies after that, you know.
0: Gotcha. Well, now, you know, I think i looking back at it. That's been, a, you know, 50 years of activism, my friend, you know, yeah. and, and then you take a look at what's going on. We're to talk a little bit about everything that's happened since. But, you know, you're looking at the fact that, you know, nowadays you've got an industry now that is, you know, projected to be, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry in the next couple of years. Yeah. Really, whether people want to admit it or not, it's all kind of because of you. And, you know, (laughs) because what you guys started out doing way back then. Let me do something. I got to take, I got to pay a couple bills. Let me pay some bills. Take a quick break. We'll come right back. And then. Let's talk a little bit about the fact that you had a you know attorney general of the state go after you, my man, which is really I just uh, insane, especially the waste of money you know, that was spent on incarcerating you for something that I'll tell you we have a little bit in common with because I got stopped in the uh, Detroit airport for having a clean, brand new glass blown pipe. But I didn't recognize I was flying from California to New York stopped in Detroit on a layover and I figured let me walk out here and buy some something at a store so I left the enclosed you know security area and then when I went back through I got pop, popped for a pipe. I didn't even know that the you know uh, Michigan had a paraphernalia law and I'll tell you the difference of what happened between me and you then I'll take a little break well, ladies and gentlemen do not go away from blunt. we have the legendary Tommy Chong with us today Tommy's gonna be right back. Tell us about how he survived, you know, people coming after him. I won't say it that way. We'll take a break. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Hey, everybody, again, thanks so much for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And today's guest is a legendary actor, best selling author, Grammy Award winning comedian. He's one half of the comedy duo Cheech and Chong and has spent 40 years advocating for cannabis legalization. And really help set the stage for what we've got going on right now. Again, welcome, Mr. Tommy Chong to Let's Be Blunt with Bartell. Thanks so much, sir, for being here today.
1: Totally my pleasure, really.
0: Absolutely. You know, I threw the break. When I went to break, I said, let's talk a little bit about that debacle that happened to you. Let's go back. You know, you're an activist and and let's us back up for a second. So this was what year was this, 19? I can't remember what year was this? No, it's uh I got prompted. 2003. Uh, 03. 03, 2003. That is absolutely, to me, insane because that's really when my activism began in cannabis was about, oh, you know, really 02, 03, where I started working across the country trying to make sure that patients like myself had, you know, access to efficacious medication. It's that that's, that's, that's simple. And, you know, and, and you needed to have tools to be able to. You know, uh, uh, used to you know, consume that medication. What was going on with you? You had just started, it was coming kind of a company and it started between you and your son, right? Well,
1: when I, when Chich and I broke up, uh, I went on the road as a stand up comedian. And while I was out there, yeah, I had no merch to sell. And so what I would do, I would sell the uh, club merch. You know, the clubs, you know, hey, can I get your autograph? And they'd show me their t shirts. And so uh, then I got really, really not bored, but uh, lonely on the road. And so my wife was trying to be an actress. And I, I, I was really hesitant to leave. She's so beautiful. I didn't want to leave her home alone, like, you know, too, too long, especially as an actress. And so I asked her to come with me on the road. We were, we, were, we had a gig in Guam, and so I uh, I was trying to get her. Guam, by the way, yeah, you've been there.
0: Yeah, I was stationed on Guam. By the way. oh yeah,
1: yeah. I- so I got I got uh, an offer to, to work there by myself, and so I didn't want to go. So I asked uh, my wife to come, and she said nah, She didn't want to come and sit in the dressing room. So I said, well, how about if I put you in the show? And right away her eyes lit up, you know, because she's a she's died in the wool performer. So she's okay. So she so I, I worked her into the show and she ended up like doing 40 minutes alone, you know. And so uh, what was the question?
0: I no, no, no. I was talking about, you know, the fact that right now we have, you know, what is it, thirty-four states, This district of Columbia and and other other to territories that have legalized cannabis oh, gotcha. it by getting busted for just selling, you know, products associated with cannabis. We're
1: talking well, about that was it. When we, uh, so we, we started selling our own t-shirts and then people were coming up to me with, with bongs that they made, chong bongs, and they would say, hey, sign this. And then my wife says, we should make our own bongs. And my son at the time was just finishing school and he had, you know, looking for a gig. And so we got him uh, arranging uh the, the bong, bong company. And ended up, he started the bong company, a glass company. And so we had Chong Bongs you know, with, you know, my son, Paris, and my wife, you know, they sort of collaborated on it. And so we, we got so big we're selling shipping across the country. We were huge. We got a pretty big operation going. We had a big factory in uh, down south, and then uh, and then the the Iraqi war was about to start, and so Bush was looking for a, a, a diversion, something to divert away from the the war itself, and so he they went after the pipe, the paraphernalia companies, the bomb companies. You know, they called it Operation Pipe Dreams. And they were going to uh, bust all the long companies, which they eventually did. And most of the companies got house arrest because it was like a, a political gig more than anything. But when they came after me, they did the research and they found out that I had quite a history of not so much activism, but more like uh, juvenile delinquency, <laughs> you know, that kind of, you know, working in clubs, you know, you get in the odd brawl. And and I ended up being arrested uh, one time, like when I had the nightclub, you know, I, one guy got hurt a little bit. And so they come after me, they arrested me. So I had a, a rap sheet. I had a, an arrest record, and it was mostly juvenile. And then I got caught when I, when I was really young, uh, six, 15, 16 years old, uh, and it was called joyriding. A friend of mine stole the car, and he stalled it in front of my house. Yeah. And so we were, we were out there trying to fix it, and then the cops pulled up, and so we ran into my house. And of course, it had just snowed, and then they had the fresh uh, footprints. They caught us. They took us to jail. And, uh, and then I got fined $100 for, for the crime of joyriding. Well, obviously, the feds, when they were looking into my record, they looked, they don't care juvenile or whatever. They went and looked up. They got my record. They got my sheet. And so they decided to make an example of me. And so at first, I, I wanted to I'd tell them, uh, you know, I wanted to fight it. I hired lawyers and everything because it wasn't my company. And but the lawyers, you know, they took their 100 grand uh, deposit. But then the feds come back and told me that if I didn't take, if I didn't take, if I didn't plead guilty, it was no deal. They said, if I didn't plead guilty, they were going to go after my wife and my son. And when they said that, I said, OK, I will plead guilty. And so when I pled guilty, then they, uh, they got me one of those judges <laughs> they're talking about now, Schwab in Pittsburgh. And uh, he gave me nine months in 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 jail.
0: Nine months for selling a pipe. Yeah, that water was like, pipe. a water pipe. So insane, and you know you had a pretty infamous cellmate, did you not?
1: I sure did, uh, Jordan Belford, the Wolf of Wall Street.
0: Wow, wow, you guys are still friends to today, are you not? Totally,
1: big big friends. Well, we were sell we were sellies. you yeah know, we. It's funny, we used to, we had, there, it was like a little cubicle that held uh, three, three, a bunk in in a single bed. And I, because of my age, I had the single bed and, and Jordan had the, the bottom bunk. And we used to talk every night and he would tell me all these stories, which became the Wolf of Wall Street book. Because uh, I was writing, that's when I was writing my memoirs, uh, uh, Meditations from the Joint. And then Jordan would come in from playing tennis, and he would say, uh, what are you doing? And I told him, writing a book, he said, oh, I'm going to write a book. And so he, 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 he's a genius. He, is, he, he was going to be a medical doctor because he finished high school very young. He is a genius, bonafide genius. And the, and the, the professor told him, if you're here to make money, then get up and leave now. And so Jordan Jordan got up and left and then got into the stock market and the penny penny stocks and then he found figured out a way to 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 corrupt that you know to make it and so he ended up in jail he like I said he is a genius he learned how to fly a helicopter himself because he he's that kind of guy and so, so when he he was literally on house arrest because they caught him doing all those deals and uh, he got bored, so him and his buddies one time they flew a helicopter from uh, New York to uh, from Long Island to uh, Atlantic City to gamble, and then he hit the pa- the, the the papers song with the girls on either side, and it was a so boom, so he got uh, time in jail. The judge had to put him in jail, and so that's how he ended up in jail with me. But he started when he started writing, he was. Like I said, he's such a, a genius, but also such a thief too. Because the first thing he wrote was uh, was uh, almost word by word by Tom Wolfe, you know, the bonfires of the vanities. And right. So, so he handed it to me. you know trying to show him what a great writer he is. You know, and so that's when we became friends because I told him, you you, you just copied this man. You didn't write shit. Right. And so I, I handed it back to him, and then this so he said, well, what should I write? You know, then he got very uh, fragile. And I said, write the stories that you've been telling me every night. That's what people want to hear. And then I give him a little, the most of uh, rule. And he said, what's that? I said, it's the most of. If you're going to get high, get so high that it's unbelievable. You know, it's it's the biggest high ever. And, and so he's, he, he can do that and it would be real. and Because he was a Quaalude addict on <laughs> top of everything and so uh then we got i got out on first i got out on probation a year probation and uh, and then jordan got out and we weren't supposed to communicate with each other so he drove by the house one day in, in his car peeps a horn leans out the window he goes i sold my book and i was in the upset uh, uh, upstairs I go, "What book he says, the wolf of wall street the book that we, yeah, you helped me write. I sold it. Martin Scorsese is going to do a movie. Is it crazy? That's Next thing you know, it's up.
0: It's movies out. But now when you look back at that, Tommy, I mean, you spent nine months in prison for something that people can do right now in 35 states across the country. You know, uh, and, and several of our territories, Virgin Islands, other places. And yet you spent nine months in prison. I was going to tell you that story again. I got stopped in Detroit. I purchased, I was literally leaving LA, driving to the airport and, and drove by this really unbelievable glass blown pipe and, and parent finance store. And, and it was a store that, you know, was legal operating in California. So I stopped in route airport, bought a brand new, it was a beautiful egg shaped uh, pipe that had, you know, a, uh, a bowl on the top of it and a hole in each end. And it literally, you know, uh, spiraled the smoke as it went through, come through. It was cool, it spiraled it. It was really unbelievable. But I, I never, I didn't use it. I just, you know, tested it a little bit in the store and went, wow, this is great. I put it in a bag, you know, got my receipt, brand new, clean, put it in my carry-on bag and I had it in my carry-on because this was an expensive pipe. This thing wasn't no joke, you know? So, you know, I decided I'm going to carry it in my carry-on because I don't want it to break in my check luggage and went Flew across country, stopped in Detroit, got off, and I had like a three-hour layover. And I'm like, shh, this food in here stinks inside by the gates. So let me go out into the airport where there's real restaurants, and get something to eat. Dragging my carry-on bag back through. And I had nothing else on me. Dragging my carry-on bag back through. And this little ignorant TSA person like, what's this? I said, what do you mean, what's this? It's a piece of glass. No, what is it use more? I went. It's a pipe. I might smoke tobacco out of it. He said you have to stand over here. I stood over there, and then they call for state police. What is going on? And you know that uh, you know I'm standing over by a plant, and here comes the state police. The state police officer walks up to me and says, "Mr. Williams, I'm really sorry. Um, are, are were you here in Detroit?" I said, "No, I'm just flying through. Look at my ticket. I just literally landed. I'm waiting to catch my next leg, and I go on." He goes. Yeah, unfortunately, they pulled you over because, you know, the state of Michigan just passed this paraphernalia law. And I said, "Why well, I'm not in the state of Michigan. I'm in an airport. And the guy said, yeah, but, you know, when you left the gate area and you came through, that was literally in the state area. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. He said, no, I got to write you this ticket. So the dude writes me this ticket, gave me, no, took my pipe. And I was like, that, that was $395, dude. You better give me that pipe back. He said, no. Sorry, we have to keep it, as paraphernalia. And I went on. Now, I got back to New York, I called my lawyer and everything. And of course, now I've got this ticket. And, you know, while I'm standing there waiting by side, of course, because it's me, you know, there's paparazzi there. And, you know, that night on TMZ, I'm there on TMZ, Monto wanted to stop for carrying drugs through the airport in Detroit. And I ain't got no drugs, I've just got my pipe. It was just insane. But anyway, long story short, by that Monday afternoon, the judge who saw this threw it out with prejudice because I should have never been stopped. I never left the airport. And this is something that had nothing to do with the state of Michigan. They should have never bothered me. And they were supposed to send me my pipe back, but they didn't. And, you know, it was a $395 pipe piece of glass that, you know, I was, I was really ticked off. And I should say, I've been stopped three two other times. I got stopped in Wisconsin. I got stopped in Germany, believe it or not. Yeah. And each time I got thrown out because what happened is the judge in Wisconsin threw the case out with prejudice because I had no cannabis on me. And when I was stopped in Germany, I had a little bit of Keefe in this little teeny container and they had just passed their medical marijuana law. And literally the Interpol cop that stopped me, Googled me, saw my activism around medical marijuana gave me back my marijuana and said, you just can't smoke this in the airport. I said, I had no intention to it. I'm sorry, I forgot I even had it. And let me go. That's how they treated me, because they looked up my activism and let me go. But they looked up your activism and put you in jail. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. What was it exactly, activism? Uh, no, they just needed a, 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 a scapegoat because... I, you know, you know how the lawyers tell you don't don't talk, don't talk. So, but as soon as they put a mic in front front of me, you know, they asked me about the bust, and I said, well, <laughs> you know, being a comedian, I had a, a you know kind of uh, admit, kind of uh, vocalize that that, that uh, you know the Iraqi war had just started, and these were the only weapons of mass destruction that they found <laughs> were my bongs, <laughs> and so that got a chuckle and. Uh, Got me nine months in jail. <laughs> uh, uh.
0: So what do you think about what's going on now in the entire cannabis space?
1: Oh, it's incredible! It's incredible. I mean, you know, they're still trying to get their foot out of the, the quagmire of racism. You know, it's still they're still stuck there. You know, like Canada. You know, they're still trying to treat it like alcohol. You know, and then they have a law in Canada where you can't use your your celebrity uh, uh, name to promote weed. Uh, that that's there's they're still there, and and like in in America too. You know, yeah, it's legal, and and but it's still illegal in New York because the black market is so huge in New York that uh, they don't want to let that go, and nobody does uh, the the growers, the sellers, and the cops, because the cops, you know that. When, when when they legalized pot and they took that income away from the cops you know uh th- that's you know that's how they used to buy all their equipment with forfeiture forfeitures you know they would steal you know if when they when they raided my house they came at my house with a swat team now you know no i've got no history of violence or anything since way back um uh, but my especially living been here in, in the palisades and so they showed up my house, showed up five in the morning with full gear. Everybody had their SWAT team gear on and their weapons and they're banging on the door. And so I let them in and then they came running in. But you know what they were looking for? They, were, they weren't really looking for grass. You know, it was obvious that there, there'd be grass somewhere. They were looking for weapons. They were looking for guns. That's, where, that's why they search. That's why they come in there with, with, a, with a SWAT team to the drug place. Because there's always, if you're doing illegal, there's always a gun somewhere. <clears throat> and if you got a gun and a pot wrap, you know, when I was in jail, there were so many in there doing big time, not for the pot, but for the, for the weapons that they had in their house. And so when they, they went through, my whole house couldn't find one weapon because I don't believe, it, uh, totally don't believe in, 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 in weapons, you know. Uh, guns they, they kill people <laughs> and I don't want to be killed and so they couldn't find any any, any uh, things and so then they at the end of the, the, the search they then they, they wouldn't tell me why they were searching and then they finally told me about the bongs you know that I'm <laughs> being busted for shipping paraphernalia across the state line and and <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I got mad because it wasn't my company, it was my son's company, and he was just on the verge. But they had put out this lie that, that you know, in order to justify the bus, they said that the parap- paraphernalia business was funneling billions of dollars into the terrorist organizations. That, that's, that's what they, they, they said that in my indictment. And they also said that I should go to jail. Because I made movies that made fun of law enforcement agencies. Wow. They literally—it's—it's it's in my uh, thing, you know, when where they got me. But but what I did, you know, I had a lot of do a lot of soul searching, you know, because the lawyers could have kept me going forever. I could have had to, you know, been. You know, I would still, I'd be one those guys in jail saying, no, no, I shouldn't be here. My lawyer is going to get me out. You know, they never get out. And once, and so I, I talked to one lawyer, a friend of mine across the street, one of the top lawyers in, in L.A., and he told me, he said, just do your time. Just do your time and then do all that other stuff after. So the minute I, I realized that, then I started, I changed my mindset. set into instead of fighting it accepting it and so then so then I accepted it and then I went in it was a camp you know because uh, the you know it's a nonviolent uh, thing and, and they were kind of embarrassed too that they had to put me in jail and so they put me in a camp and the camp had an Indian sweat lodge society and we had Indian grounds and then everybody in the camp were for the most part weren't shouldn't have been there either you know, they're most nonviolent, uh, mostly financial crimes. Uh, like I was in there with a uh, uh, what's it, uh, Reagan speechwriter. Uh, you know, he, they wanted him to give up stuff on Mon on uh, Marcos, Imelda Marcos, because after, uh, you know, Reagan got out, then they went after the Marcos family. And, and the lawyer wouldn't do it. So he ended up, they had given him a year in jail. Uh, And so he so I I had friends like that. And then I I met a golf caddy that he's out on the tour now and we just had dinner. And now he he took me under his wing because what happens in in most of these camps, if not all of them, uh, the inmates run the, the prison because they're the smart they're smarter and so they're, they're in all the the jobs the the guards they walk around and the the administration they they hardly do anything they let the prisoners do all the work and so i was in there with uh, eric larson and eric ran a garden he had a garden fresh vegetable garden for the for the uh, food banks and so we we got to eat uh, cook our own food and eat in our own little private kind of dining area it was a TV room with the banks, of TV on the room. And so other than I want, I wanted to just experience a mess hall of feeling. So I, so I went to the, to the dining room, you know, a few times, and it was pretty bad. The food was really, you know, it's prison food there's nothing you can do. But in fact, we used to take and feed it to the ground squirrels wow. <laughs> and the ground squirrels got all overweight, but, but actually what I did, and then, then I started studying uh, spiritual books, you know, Joel Goldsmith and Emmett Fox and, uh, and the I Ching. And, and I, I just went off into, and then I literally, and then the sweat lodge, Indian sweat lodge. I literally changed my sentence into a, a it, it became a, it wasn't a prison anymore. It was like a religious retreat because I, I could sp- spend as much time as I wanted in, in the Indian sweat lodge area. And then the gardener, uh, the guy that ran the garden, Mr. Ono, he found this big thing of clay, natural clay, and he brought that to our, we had a little, sh- little shed in the garden. And so I had my little pottery area where I'd make bongs.
0: <laughs> 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 it's crazy. Well, now, look, I'm, I'm going to lose you here in a minute, but before I do it, I've got to give you an opportunity to talk about the fact that you are a two-time cancer survivor, and you chose cannabis to be your medication route. Absolutely. I, got,
1: I think I got uh, prostate because I wasn't using cannabis the whole time I was in jail. The last thing I wanted them to do was to have me violate their, their drug policies. That's what they were really looking for, for me to do in prison because I would get drug tested almost daily, you know, and I would be offered marijuana almost daily from the different people. Because the thing is, if they could, if they could get me violated, then they knocked some time off their, their sentence. And so I, I, I stayed totally clean, but I contracted uh, prostate cancer. And it was one of those slow work, working cancers where the doctor said, Oh, don't worry about it. You know, you're gonna die of something else before this kills you. It was that kind of cancer. And so uh I I then I went on a very strict vegetarian vegan diet. And I could drink and, and I and I started using uh marijuana suppositories to, to, to get to the affected area. But When they looked for the cancer in me, they did a biopsy, which is very dangerous because the biopsy spread the cancer to my rectum, and then I ended up with rectal cancer, and so then I had to do the operation. And when I did the operation, it was done, you know, very nice. But uh, they pumped me up with a lot of uh, opioids, and I had a little button, you know, when I was in the hospital, I could hit that button. And uh, my body would be flooded with opioids. That I wore that button out, man. I just <laughs> kept hitting that button, in that button. But when I got out, I, I realized, you know, I, I, you know, I could get addicted so fast. So then I started doing CBD injections. I started injecting in, in my in the muscle, and then I started uh, doing uh, the Rick Simpson oil, the very heavy heavy oil. And then it, this is just me. I may be. Wrong, But I, I feel what happens is that uh, the cannabis affects the brain. The brain controls the body. When you put the brain, like when, you, when your computer messes up, you turn it off. You reboot it. And so I think what happens with cannabis with me, it rebooted my body. And so it caused me to relax so much that the, my uh, uh, immune system really kicked in. And so now I'm I'm totally cancer free, and uh, you know other than the colostomy bag which I I got because of the rectal operation, I'm I'm as healthy as I've ever been. In fact, more so. But what it is, it affects the brain, and it also because I went very spiritual, uh, it, it affects that part of the brain too, because we all have a God app in our body, and uh, and it can be activated at any time with the magic word. You don't have to even say it, you just have to think it. You just have to think either positive thoughts or the word God. That's what I do. I I, I just go to God. In fact, God and I are great friends, you know, because whenever I lose my phone, I say, okay, God, where's my phone? and then, <laughs> And there it is. And so, I think you know. So, I think
0: I'll throw out there to answer is that we know now that not only does it affect the brain, but we have an endocannabinoid system system in our body that literally is responsible for our cellular homeostasis. So it's that lack of having cannabinoids that throws us out of balance, and then once we actually feed what's necessarily needs to be fed. I think it puts us back in balance, and our body does work to heal itself the way it should. And I think cannabis is a big part of that. You know, I was going to ask you one more thing. I gotta give you some give you a chance. Why don't you promote your Chong, Chongston, Chongston? You have a brand out right now, right? Do you have a new brand out?
1: Well, it's a Tommy Chong brand. It used to be Chong's Choice, but then we got sued, and so we're, we're we just changed it to Chong Tommy Chong uh, brand. And, and I got a Tommy Chong CBD. That's going crazy all through the Midwest. Everywhere, it's a, they're in stores. And in fact, I'm. I don't think uh, I'm going to go back on the road. I think I'm just going to buy a big mansion somewhere and just uh, <laughs> exactly. continue with this. Continue with this lockdown.
0: <laughs> right, well, if anybody if anybody wants to get a hold of some of your CBD, where do they go? You got a website?
1: I've got a couple of websites. There's Hey Chong, Hey Tommy Chong, Hey Tommy Chong, or TommyChong.com. Uh, and then you can it'll tell you where you can buy our products. Gotcha. You can buy it. And and then we're starting a and Chong dispensary line. Uh, Cheech and I are hooked up. We're going to do our own dispensary. It's called a and Chong's dispensaria. We're going to open the first one in San Francisco, and then the second one in LA, and then we're going to uh, branch go right around the world. And it's going to be more than just a dispensary. It's going to be more like an old-fashioned Canadian uh, community center, you know. Because my problem with these uh, these dispensaries now is that it's too like come here, get your stuff, get out of there. <laughs> you know, you know, they got that. But I want to do bulletin boards and TVs and 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 and, and really, uh, it's a community thing, you know. everywhere that's the problem with america right now we we don't have enough community uh, communities you know community centers because that's what we had in. Can- we still got them in canada well, you know, and you don't pay for, you don't pay for anything you know you get all the recreation everything else you want b- being part of the community center so that's what our, our dispensaries are going to have that appeal to it and and we also carry the best the very best product best cbd you can find medically you know uh i met the rick simpson oil people and you know I, i've met a quite a quite a few people you know and and so the the thing is about anything that i'm i'm dealing with because there's no problem to get the best of the best and and we got that it's all available and that's what we sell so we've had a very little complaint every once in a while you know you know people try to scam you you know say hey i bought your stuff in it wasn't good. <laughs> so said, what do you want me to do? Give you some free stuff? Yeah, that would be nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, give me some of that stuff that wasn't good. I'll, I'll take a little break. I, mean, I, can't, I can't thank you enough for being a part of today's show. You've given me so much time. I, I got to say thank you, sir. Again, you're one of my heroes. And look, I, I wanted you to know you always have a place here whenever you want to have a conversation. Just to chat, my friend, please come back. We'd love to have you back, okay?
1: Uh, what, what, what did you do in a band? Were you the singer?
0: I was a singer. I played bass for a little while, but I primarily sang. And, uh, you know, I, I was a singer, front man, a dancer. I did that for, I was in three different bands, but um, all through my high school career. And then I even played in a couple of bands when I was in the military. I ran a program at the Naval Academy called Midship and Modern Music Bands. So I sang in the NA10, which was Naval Academy 10, which is a big band. And I've gotten away from it, but I, I, some of the fondest memories of my life.
1: Was it rock? Did you sing?
0: I, we did kind of a, you know, top 40 cover. I sang everything from Fleetwood Mac to uh, The Temptations.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. So you're a singer.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I dabble a little bit. Even the even I still do dabble just a little bit.
1: Well, let's, let's I'm a musician. I'm, I'm, I play guitar, you know, and I've always had singers, so, so let's, let's, let's get a musical thing going.
0: Let's hook up sometime. And, you know, look in this space, in the cannabis space, I know you know that, or maybe you don't know, I have my own brand of cannabis that has been out here for a while, which is called Lenative, but Montel, where I feature. I'm doing something a little bit different where I've been, I'm the formulator. You know, I got a degree in engineering from the Naval Academy. And so I've kind of delved into the plant more from a really seriously medicinal standpoint, but I literally have made some formulations that have terpenes and uh, proprietary terpene formulations. And I've done some whole plant formulations and I kind of mix CBD and THC together in my THC brand. And then CBD brand, I have a solid CBD brand. Like give yourself, I've I've gone after the best of the best and making sure that I formulated myself. But in fact, I'm very very getting ready to start with a new contract manufacturer. So we should, you know, let's let's, uh, link up together again and have some real big discussions. If I ever get out to California, I'll come by and see you. Let's do it. Yes, sir. And again, for sure, you are invited on Let's Be Blunt with Montel anytime you want to come.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you very
0: much. Absolutely, my friends. So keep us abreast of what your new products are. And when you start opening up your stores, I'm going to make sure I make some announcements here.
1: Good enough. That sounds good.
0: Yes, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had the one and only Tommy Chung right here on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thank you, sir. Stay well. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And I can't wait to see you in another 82 years.
1: Okay. We'll We'll do that. that.
0: You take care of yourself. Thank you. We're out.